There's things in life that you learn in school that just don't translate. No matter how much your high school teachers, your junior high teachers, even some of your college professors may have told you you're going to need this later in life. And I was hoodwinked, just like the rest of you probably were, that calculus was going to somehow benefit me in life. And the last time I actually solved for X, I was in high school. So algebra, calculus, those things, and you're shaking your head at me going, yeah, you use it, you just don't realize you use it. Exactly. I didn't need calculus, right? I don't realize that I'm using it, and yet it still works. So great. If you're a math major, you're a business guy, you're, a, you're an engineer, and calculus is your bread and butter, fantastic. It was not mine in school, and yet they told me, you're going to use this. Or how about uh, foreign languages? I went to school in Dallas and grew up in Dallas, and I decided that Spanish wasn't going to be helpful for me, so I decided I would take French. That's done a whole lot of good for me. Yeah. I, uh, I can be conversant to the extent of asking somebody how they're doing and asking them what their name is, and that's about it at this point in time, okay? So uh, taking French over Spanish probably wasn't the most practical use of my high school foreign language credits. But then there was this other thing that I, I still remember, and it was, I think, seventh grade or eighth grade, and it was our science class, and we went out to the football stadium, which is, in Texas is as tall as any of the cathedrals or churches that you'll find in the area. And we went up to the top of the football stadium, and we all had these eggs with us, and they were raw eggs. And the goal of this project was we had to drop the egg from the top of the football stadium and have it reach the bottom and not be cracked, right? And so, man, this was fun because it was something different, and it was outside of the box, and we got to play with things and, and figure things out and, and build these parachutes and take them up there and build the cradles for the eggs and we dropped them and I, I remember watching them go down and we would cheer because we were guys when the egg broke of our teammates or our, our peers in the class and we dropped ours and, and just hoped that it would stay intact and I, I honestly don't remember if mine survived or not but talk about something that I've never used again in my entire life right I've dropped plenty of things since then plenty of things but I've never stopped to ask myself, now what's the rate of descent of the thing that I just dropped? And how could I have slowed it down? And maybe if I had attached a, a parachute to my pen as I dropped it, I could have preserved it intact before it hit the ground. It's just useless, right? But it's something that they fill time with for our kids while they're in school. Well, when it comes to 1 Peter, 1 Peter wants to make sure that we're not leaving what he's been talking about, this 30,000-foot view of who we are and our role as believers and our identity as followers of Christ and the, the call to be godly and holy in this present age. He wants to make sure that that's not the same thing as that egg drop project for me in high school. He wants to make sure that now as we enter into the trenches with Peter, and you started this last week by looking at our subjection to the ruling and governing authorities in our lives, Peter wants to make sure as we enter into the trenches that we're bringing what he's been talking about into the everyday lives that you and I live. What does it look like practically for us to live these lives as strangers and aliens, as, as those that have been called out of darkness and into the marvelous light of Christ? What does it look like for us to live godly lives in this present age? And Peter's addressed our subjection to authorities. Now he's going to address the master-slave relationship. Next, he's going to address the, the husband-wife relationship. And these are all under the category of what we call household codes. In other words, these are the most common interactions, the most common relationships that the, the believers that Peter was writing to at this time were facing. 
These were their bread and butter of every single day. They were interacting with all of these different people, the authorities, the, the master-slave relationship, and, and also the husband and wife relationship. So Peter's saying, what I've been writing to you about godliness and holiness and your identity as believers, if you want to stand firm in the faith, you need to put, you need to put boots on the ground in your everyday life and figure out what this looks like practically for you. Open up to 1 Peter chapter 2 if you're not already there. And we're going to read from verse 18 down through verse 25. Peter says, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin, you're beaten for it and you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, if you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, and neither was there deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. These first three verses, Peter introduces us to this new relationship. It's no longer governing authorities and everybody. Now it's master-slave, master-servant. And we need to do a little bit of legwork here because when we read the word servant and master or slave and master, we are trained based on our upbringing and our context to think about American slavery in the, in the 18th and 19th centuries here in this country. And that's not at all what was going on. That's not what, what Peter was, was writing to address. That's not the, the, the context that he was engaging with. That's not what the master-slave relationship was like during this time. The Greco-Roman con- concept of, of slavery was far different. In fact, a lot of these slaves were captives that the Romans had taken when they conquered the, the other nations that would oppose them. They were some of the best and the brightest, the most brilliant. If you think even back to the Old Testament, when the Babylonians came in and laid siege to Jerusalem in the book of Daniel, what did they do? They took the best and the brightest back to Babylon with them. And so that's the idea. So some of these were doctors. Some of these were artisans. They were musicians. They were teachers. They were scientists. They they were some of the most brightest minds that you could find. But what would happen is the the Romans would go in, they would conquer the people, they would take these servants, these slaves captive, they would become their their servants, and they would put them in the household. And that's what these types of slaves were. When it says servants, it's a Greek word there, oikotas, it means household slave. So the the doctor of the family, the, the tutor of the family, the artisan of the family. Peter's addressing them and he says, be subject to your masters with all respect. Though this wasn't the same thing as what we think of as American slavery, this was still an involuntary relationship here. The slave didn't have the freedom to walk away from his master. The slave didn't have the the autonomy to have any sort of rights or privileges in the society and the culture. The slave was considered a lower class citizen. Economically, there was really no upward mobility for them at all. They owned nothing. And really, they had no legal standing either. And so this was not the same level of suffering as what we look at in American slavery, but this was still not a a fun position to be in. And a lot of times you'll hear people push back on the Bible and push back 
on Christianity. And they'll say, well, the Bible gives approval, at least tacitly, to slavery. Because what you don't have Peter writing here is you don't have Peter saying, slaves, you're free in Christ. Flee your masters. Run away from your masters. In fact, you don't even have Peter exhorting the masters to free their slaves. In fact, do you remember the book of Philemon that Paul wrote? Paul's got this runaway slave, Onesimus, that's come to him, right? And Paul's writing to Philemon, telling Philemon, look, I'm sending Onesimus back to you to continue to be your servant. And Paul says, you need to treat him well and treat him justly and fairly. But Paul's not saying to Onesimus, free him because slavery is wrong. And so people want to look at the Bible and say that the Bible is condoning slavery, but the Bible never condones slavery. See, here's what the Bible and what the first century Christians were up against. They were up against an, an eons old system of slavery and captivity that really the upstart church in the first century held little hope of overturning, right? This was a cultural institution. So Peter knew that these believers, they had things that they needed to be fighting. They had things that they needed to be focused on. They had things that they needed to be working on. But overturning the cultural entity of slavery that existed during this time was not number one on Peter's list. So given that, Peter was writing to these believers, some of them who were slaves, and telling them, look, as we're talking about your identity as believers, as strangers and aliens, I want you to know in the relationship that you find yourself in with your masters, this is what God wants you to do in that context in that environment, in that relationship. And so again, Peter's putting boots on the ground for them. In some ways, we can draw a parallel to today's society for where you are in this room because you're sitting here going, well, I'm not a slave and I'm not a master of really anyone. So what do I do with this? Well, there's a certain extent, and Wayne Grudem says that there's some grounds in which we can draw the parallel between this concept of slavery in the modern workplace, although there's some pretty significant differences there, right? Because if you have a master who's cruel, as Peter's about to address here shortly, you can look at that boss and say, well, boss, this has been great, but this is an at-will relationship, right? You are employed in an at-will employment. You are free to say, here's my two weeks notice. I'm going to find something else for me. See, the slave didn't have that opportunity, didn't have that freedom to leave. And so while the parallel exists there a little bit, that's not something that I want to hammer home too strongly for us tonight, but rather what I want us to do is look at what Peter's writing about, which is enduring hardship, suffering unjustly, and look at what he has to say to us in those regards. Peter says there in the text, he says, be subject for the Lord's sake, or verse 18, sorry, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. So Peter holds these two types of masters, the the good and the gentle and the unjust, the morally corrupt, the evil, the wicked, the oppressive master. And Peter says in both of those instances, your obligation is the same. You need to be subject to them, be obedient, be submissive to their commands, as long as they're not asking you to sin. And, And you might think to yourself, well, that sounds like a pretty tall order. Under the oppression from a wicked master, a cruel master, how can I hope to subject myself to him? And the answer is contained in the rest of that verse. It says, with all respect. With all respect. The word respect there in the Greek is phobos. It's where we get our our English concept of phobias, right? Which is something that you are what? Afraid of, fearful of. So the ESV here translates this respect, and and I think they... 
they hurt us a little bit in that because we can think that this is about respect to the masters. Be subject to your masters with all respect, but it's not that at all. In fact, this is the word fear. It's be subject to them with all fear. And when Peter uses this word in the other instances and occurrences of it in this letter, he's always talking about the fear of who? God, not man. In fact, there's two specific instances, chapter 3, verse 6, and chapter 3, verse 14, where Peter explicitly prohibits us from fearing man, warns us about fearing man. And so it wouldn't make any sense for us to read verse 18, servants be subject to your masters with all respect and think that he's talking about us fearing these earthly masters or the original audience fearing their earthly masters. No, rather, Peter is saying you need to subject yourselves out of a fear of God. And that's the key that unlocks how you can say whether the, your earthly master is good or evil, subject yourself to them. Obey them so long as they're not asking you to sin. Why? Because your obedience to them is first and foremost an act of obedience to God. It's an act of reverence to the Lord. It's, it's offered in a fear of God. And he says this can sometimes result in suffering to the unjust, the, the morally corrupt, the oppressive And he says, for this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. There's two types of suffering in view in this opening passage here. There's first the the suffering that comes from just being a bonehead, right? There's the suffering that comes from sin. There's the suffering that comes from making foolish choices. There's the suffering that is part of the consequences of your rebellion against God. Peter's not saying that you should pat yourself on the back or throw a pity party or put on the the martyr cape for suffering like that. The other type of suffering, though, is the suffering that accompanies our identity as Christians. Suffering for doing good. See, as we live our lives here as the people of God, it's this fear of God that should compel us to endure hardships that we encounter, not as a result of our own sinfulness, but because of our identity as strangers and aliens, as Peter has already told us we are, in the hostile world in which we live. And so we need to fear the Lord. We need to trust him. We need to have this understanding of God's sovereignty in our lives and over our lives that allows us to endure the difficulties that we currently face. Point number one tonight is this. Endure hardship through fearing God. Endure hardship through fearing God. Maybe you had, growing up, there were, there were friends that you had in, in your life who, they were kind of your, your knucklehead friends, right? And maybe some of you were those guys. These were the guys that were like, let's go do something that's, probably not on the positive side of the wisdom scale. I won't tell you what side of that scale I fell on. I did find myself in the back of pickup trucks firing Roman candles out of the back of them when I was in high school, making dry ice bombs and throwing them down gutters, different things like that. Probably not the smartest thing to do, right? But there's always the, the one that's, that's the wise friend that goes, you know what, why don't you guys go do that, but I've got something else I'm going to go do instead. Because he understands the concept of guilt by association, right? And he's not going to join with you because he knows that when the hammer is dropped, that he's going to be suffering for those stupid things that you did as well, right? So he's choosing, you know what, you can mock me. 
You can make fun of me. You can think that I'm a, a, a drag. You can think that, that I'm weak and that I'm afraid and that I'm a coward. Go ahead and call me whatever you want to call me. But when you're suffering for the consequences of your own stupidity, I'm going to be fine, right? It's a little bit about what we're talking about here. You have a world that's doing a lot of stupid things. And that world is beckoning you. Come join us. Come be a part of what we're doing. Come rebel against this God of creation. Come worship the creature rather than the creator, right? And so you have a choice. You can either be rejected and mocked and and scorned by the world, and that's the extent of the suffering that you will ever endure. Or you can give in to that and you can face the judgment of God eventually, which is a far greater level of suffering. The question that he asks in verse 20, he says in verse 19, it's a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and you're beaten for it, you endure? This is a rhetorical question, right? He's expecting that the, the answer is obvious. There's no credit for it. There's no credit for you suffering because of your sin. But the flip side of that is there's great credit for you suffering as a result of your faithfulness to God. He says it's a gracious thing in the sight of God when you endure sorrows while suffering unjustly. When you do good, verse 20, and suffer for it and you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Guys, this is a phenomenal statement from Peter. Peter is saying that God looks at that and says, wow, that's worthy of commendation. He's saying this is a good thing. This is a commendable thing. You are doing well. Well done. So that when you endure your suffering, your hardship, because of your identity in Christ, in other words, your suffering is a direct result of the fact that you are remaining faithful to God, that you are fearing God, that God looks at you while you endure that hardship and while you endure that suffering, and he says to you, well done. Your commendation is coming from the God of all creation in that instance. What does it look like? Well, number one, Enduring this way while fearing God is not dependent on your circumstances. No matter what suffering you face, you are called still to endure in the fear of God. That's why Peter says, whether your master is good or whether your master is a loser, cruel, vindictive, evil, wicked, oppressive, your job is the same in both. As long as he is not calling you to sin, you obey him. Why? Because that is what God is calling you to do. And you obey him with an eye towards the Lord. And so it's not dependent on your circumstances. God doesn't give us an out when the world's wickedness gets turned up. We still need to endure. We still need to remain faithful. Second thing it means is it means not keeping your faith private. It means not keeping your faith to yourself. You can avoid suffering without participating in the suffering, right? You can kind of cover over it. You can kind of just kind of skirt the issues here. But what Peter's wanting you to do is he's wanting you to walk in eyes open, chest out to the opposition of the world and say, I'm not going to do that because of my relationship with Christ. And whatever comes in response to that is to be welcomed. Why? Again, because God looks at that and says, well done. So it means not keeping your faith to yourself. So much of this, men, comes down to the doctrine of God's sovereignty in your life. Do you believe in the difficult situations that you have found yourself in, that maybe you find yourself in right now, that God is sovereign over that, that he has put you into that position for his purposes? That he wants you right where he has you. 
Maybe it is at work. Your boss is crass and crude. Little to no concern about your work environment. Unreasonable expectations, harsh when they aren't met. Maybe he's corrupt. You know that, that he's corrupt and that he's, he's lining his pockets on money that he didn't earn. Maybe he doesn't praise people, recognize their hard work, their good work. Or maybe he hasn't increased your pay in the last five years and you're in that situation and you're saying, yeah, but what about now? Isn't this unjust? Can't I protest? Can't I do something different? And this is where the disconnect happens because yeah, you can turn in your two weeks notice, right? But if you choose to stay, God would say, endure that hardship with the fear of the Lord that leads to you suffering well for him. Not grumbling and complaining, not being passive aggressive, but to continue to stay the course. Why? Again, because of the commendation that comes from God. Because it's worth it, because he's watching that and he's aware of what's going on and he knows the the trouble that you're facing and the suffering that you're up against and he's telling you, well done. This is a gracious thing in his sight. So if your faith becomes a target or your integrity costs you a promotion or another opportunity, if your identity as a Christian means that you know very well what it means to be an alien and a stranger in your workplace, praise God for that. Praise God for that. It's, it's, it's like Peter and the apostles when they were beaten in the book of Acts and they left rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for the cause of Christ. It's a sign of your faith. It's a sign that you're doing things right, doing things well. And it looks like this. It looks like fearing the Lord regardless of your circumstances. It looks like fearing the Lord by not keeping your faith to yourself. And then it also looks like fearing the Lord by following the example that we have in Christ. And that's where Peter goes next. This call to endure, this call to submit. Still, we might say, yeah, but Peter, you don't know what's facing me. You don't know what I've given up. You don't know what I've lost. You don't know how hard it is every single day for me to get up and go to work. You don't know how draining it is on me to do this. And so Peter says, yes, but somebody does. Look at verse 21. For to this, to endure suffering with an eye to the fear of God, for to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was there deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. For to this you have been called. This is a difficult text to preach to a room full of men living in South Orange County. To suffer for your faith, to suffer for your identity as a Christian. I'm not saying that there's nobody in this room who could stand up and say, hey, I've experienced that and it's been painful and it's cost me. But I'm saying by, uh, by the, the, the majority of us at, at large here, this is not something that we're wrestling with on a daily basis. And yet we have to confront ourselves with what Peter just wrote. You have been called to suffer as a result of your identity in Christ. And it begs the question, should I be suffering more than I am? Is it sinful for me not to be suffering right now? Have have I received a different calling maybe than than this? Is is there a subset that's a calling for the 
the 21st century American Christian that, that doesn't have to suffer? Should I be pursuing suffering? What would that even look like? How would I even begin to pursue that? Well, to answer these questions, we have to understand the nature of this calling that Peter's talking about here. For to this you have been called. Well, what's the calling in view there? Is this a second calling? Is this a a separate calling that's distinct and unique from your calling that is the effectual calling of God when he regenerates you and makes you a believer in Christ? Is this some maybe uber elitist, hyper spiritual calling that some people who are martyrs of the faith, is is that something that, that they receive that's distinct? And the answer is no. This is the same calling that we read about in chapter two, verse nine. The same calling that is the, the calling that called us out of darkness, right? And into the marvelous light of God. This is the calling that is the calling that affected faith within your life, that gave you, that regenerated you so that you would have the the faith to believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior. This is the calling of salvation. And so Peter is saying, when you receive this calling to become part of God's people, a people for his own possession, a people that should be holy and blameless, a people that have been called out of darkness into his marvelous light, a a, a people who are strangers and aliens. When you receive that calling, you also receive a calling that puts you at odds with the world around you and is going to inevitably at some point in time and in some form or fashion cause you to suffer as a follower of Jesus Christ. Psalm 34, 19 Psalm 34, 19 says, many are the afflictions of the righteous. If you're righteous, you are going to have afflictions in this world because this world is a den of unrighteousness. 1 John 2, 15 through 17, do not love the world, right? Are the things in the world, why? Because the things of the world, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh and the boastful pride of life, John says, are not from God, but they're from the world. And the world along with its desires is passing away, but the one who does the will of the Lord endures forever. You see, we are in hostile territory here. As we talked about earlier, behind enemy lines. And so we are going to suffer. The righteous are going to suffer afflictions because of the world unrighteousness of unrighteousness that we live in. Paul told Timothy this in 2 Timothy 3.12. Paul said, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Except, right? We want that. We want that exception clause. Oh, but don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Technological advancements will take over and and you'll be insulated and you'll be safe and you don't have to worry about suffering. You can read Fox's Book of Martyrs instead. You'll get credit for it that way. No, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. Jesus said it, John 15, 20. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also what? Persecute you. If I suffered, you'll suffer. John 16, 33. I have said these things to you that in me you might have peace. In the world though, you will have tribulation. See men, we need to expect suffering. We need to welcome 
opposition and welcome suffering, not with a slap happy, stupid grin on our face, but as a sign and a testimony to you that you are doing it right, that you are following Christ, that the world recognizes that you are following your Savior, and that world that hates your Savior is going to hate you. And so if they hate you, wear that as a badge of honor, men, because it means that you are representing your Savior well in a fallen and lost world. We shouldn't have to look very far to find ourselves at odds with this world around us. And Peter says, though, that that Jesus suffered for us as well, leaving us an example. And that word there is that word for stencil. It's a pattern that you can trace over and know that you are doing it exactly the same way. And Peter's saying when it comes to suffering, that's what Christ is for us. He is our stencil. He is our guide. He's gone before us and said, follow me. And so our second point tonight is this. When it comes to suffering, trace Christ's example of suffering unjustly. With your life, trace his example of suffering unjustly. Look to him and say, how did you suffer, Jesus? That's the way that I want to suffer. That's the way that I want to endure the same way that you did so that you might follow in his steps. What did that look like? Verse 22 and 23. He committed no sin. That's a summary statement right there. Neither was there deceit found in his mouth. He didn't lie to avoid suffering. He didn't deceive to to try to avoid the flames of, of tribulation. When he was reviled and mocked, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. I'm sure you hear the echoes of a famous passage in this this text, don't you? That passage is in the book of Isaiah and in chapter what? 53, right? The suffering servant. Peter is all over our passage tonight, reaching back to Isaiah and grabbing these statements from Isaiah 53 and bringing them to bear on Christ as the fulfillment of that. And he's saying, this is the way that we should suffer. Listen to Isaiah 53, 7 through 9, in light of what I just read. Isaiah 53, 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that's led to slaughter and like a sheep that's before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. As for his generation, his peers, his his fellow Jews, who considered that he was even cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. This is the pattern. This is the example. And it might feel passive or weak to you. And you may sit there and you may think to yourself, but I need to fight back. I have God-given rights. I need to take matters into my own hand. I need to, to be a man, and this is not being a man, and yet I'm sure if the Son of Man was standing here, you wouldn't say that to his face, would you? And we talk about the atonement, and the, the atonement is, we talk about it from that, that substitutionary model. In other words, that that Jesus took our place on the cross to take our sins and to, to bear our wrath that, that we deserve, God's wrath against us. And we talk about it from the substitutionary element of the atonement, and that's certainly uh, uh, applicable, but there's also this, this example theory of the atonement 
which is not sufficient in and of itself, but it's, it's also something that we need to be aware of, and that is that as Christ suffered, so we too should suffer in his footsteps. We're not suffering under unjust masters like Peter's original audience was, and so we need to be careful about grabbing and how much of this one-for-one correlation in the, the application that we can make here, but we certainly can make the one-for-one relationship and correlation between suffering unjustly in, in where we are today. I'm sure so many of you in this room know what it means to suffer unjustly. You've been falsely accused at work. You've lost your job for something that you didn't do or you shouldn't have done. Maybe your wife has done something or accused you of doing something that you know you didn't do. Your kids have done something like that. You've had a close friend who has betrayed you or done something wrong to you. And Peter would say, you need to follow the example of Christ. Put off the verbal protest, the grumbling and complaining. Put off the the angry attacks, the slander, the mockery, the sarcasm. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. Physician, you who would save others, save yourself. Hey, you can call down a legion of angels. Where are they, Jesus? See, if anyone could have responded and put them in their place, it was the Son of Man while he was on the cross, and yet he did not revile in return. Put off the self-focused sense of offense, right? Again, we talked about this before, but if Psalm 51 is true, if David's prayer was against you and you only, God, have I sinned, when you are sinned against men, the primary one that's offended is not you, it's God. And so when you suffer unjustly, the offense is primarily not about you, but about God. And finally, entrust yourself to your creator. See, that's what Jesus did do actively here, right? You're thinking to yourself, this is so passive. It seems so weak to do this in response to adversity, in response to to suffering. And yet, the strongest thing that Christ did is the strongest thing that you and I can do, which is to entrust ourselves to the Father who judges justly. He feared God. Jesus, the Son of God, feared the Father and understood that the Father was the one who was ultimately the arbiter of justice and that it wasn't his to take into his own hands, although he had far greater right to that than we do. And so as you and I suffer, as you and I endure hardship, we can look to Christ and we can follow his example and we can entrust our cause to God who judges justly, right? Because his justice is far greater than any of the justice that we could offer. You know, sometimes men, when, when we hear of, of tragedies, I know I'm this way, we think to ourselves, well, for instance, the, the, the head of Al-Qaeda, or, or, who, or maybe it was ISIS, who just recently blew himself up in a tunnel with his, his kids around him, right? And there's part of our flesh from our earthly perspective that says, that, man, that's, that doesn't sit right with me. I wanted him to be brought to justice. I wanted him to suffer. But what that betrays is we don't understand that God's judgment is far far superior to ours. His sense of justice is far greater than ours. So any wrongs that are done to you are going to be brought to justice by God one day in a far greater way than anything that you could do in a sinful reaction to the suffering that you have right now. And you can trust that God will do that. 
that God will right the wrongs, that God will bring the justice that you so long for right now. And so you can follow Christ. That's hard. You think to yourself, how can I do that? How can I endure suffering without sin? That that, that doesn't even seem realistic. Verse 24. He himself, the one who suffered for us so that we could follow in his footsteps, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. Here's another view of the atonement that we get here. You've got this substitutionary atoning death of Christ. That's the foundational God's wrath satisfied on the cross, right? That is the the key to the cross. But then there's also the example element of the atonement that we suffer the way that he suffered. And now you've got another one here, right? And that is the moral theory of the atonement. That the death of Christ should have an impact on our lives so that we live a more godly life as we reflect on that death. And we see that a little bit here in verses 24 and 25. Jesus bore the sins of yours and mine on his body, in his body, on the tree, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Again, Isaiah 53 comes out of this. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Verse 12, therefore I will divide with him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. This idea of bearing sin is the idea of transference. That Christ takes your sin onto himself. He bears your guilt, bears your iniquities, carries them to the cross, and suffers under the full weight of God's wrath there on the cross. And there's a purpose for that. Yes, it's about your justification, but it's also about your sanctification. Because he says that, which is a purpose statement of Peter. Christ died that you might live to righteousness and die to sin. See, there's this mindset in some branches of Christianity that as long as you've prayed a prayer, walked an aisle, whatever, you're good to go. That you don't need to have a a, a change in your life. And anyone who says that you need to change your life or you need to obey God as a result of your salvation, they're legalists and they're adding to the gospel. And I would say, read 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 24 and 25 and tell me why Christ died for you. He died to sanctify you. Yes, to save you. That's done. You're not adding to that. But Jesus and God the Father is in no way interested in leaving you the way that he found you when he saved you. And if you have not grown in Christ's likeness from the moment that you are saved, there's one of two things that, have, that has happened. You misunderstand the gospel and you're not saved. Or you are where the writer of Hebrews said to, to his audience, look, you, you need to move beyond the elementary doctrines and start maturing as a believer in Christ. Taking your faith seriously. Seeing that Christ died to sanctify you. And, and so you're asking yourself, okay, but how does this... How does this all relate to where we've been so far on suffering? And it's this. 
this is the key to how you can do the first two points. See, the doctrine of total depravity says that apart from Christ, we can do nothing good at all. Nothing good. That's why Isaiah says when, when we bring our good works to the Lord and we lay them out before him and we say, hey, God, are you pleased with me now? Which we can still do as Christians, can't we? God, does it, am I a worthwhile investment to you now? Look at how good I'm doing. That God looks at that and he says, that disgusts me. It repulses me. It reviles me. It's filthy rags, right? Yeah. Because left to ourselves, we will always do everything that we do, including walking the little old lady across the street for selfish gain. And so as such, we can't look at enduring hardship with fearing God. We can't trace Christ's example of suffering unjustly in and of ourselves unless something has happened to us that now allows us to live lives of submission and obedience to God. What is that? That's the cross. See, Peter's reminding his readers here. Yeah, I'm asking you to do something that's enormously difficult, but you can do it because of what Christ has done for you. Point number three tonight, finally, is this. Respond to Christ's example with holiness. Respond to Christ's example with holiness. It's interesting that there's some parallels, it seems here, in what Peter's talking about with what Paul talks about in Romans 6. In Romans 6, 1 through 11, Paul talks about our union with Christ. And our union with Christ, he says, is that we have died with him, right? So that we will also live with him. And it culminates there in verse 11, so that we should walk in, in newness of life, right? And so as we're thinking about that, it's, it's I, I, don't, I don't know, and, and, and this is precedent too far for me to say, thus says the Lord on this. So this is just Pastor PJ's deep thoughts, right? For whatever that's worth. But it's unique that Peter opened this talking about what type of relationship? The master-slave relationship. And now it seems that he's bookending this section. He's talking about our union with Christ's death, which Paul says has what? Freed us from slavery to sin and made us slaves of God. What's the key to you being able to endure hardship? What was the key to these first century slaves being able to subject themselves to their master? It was understanding that their identity primarily is not as an earthly slave, but as a slave of God. And that changes everything for them. This is where our, our responsibility kicks in here, guys. We can look to the example. We can focus on the example. We can memorize the example of Christ's suffering, but we actually need to follow the example of Christ's suffering. We need to discipline ourselves towards godliness. We need to be faithful. We need to understand that, man, I'm going to be tempted. I'm going to be tempted to, to grumble and complain against hardship and suffering. That's natural. That's in our flesh. I'm going to be tempted to get angry when somebody does something to me that's wrong and unjust. I'm going to be tempted to, to, to boil un, underneath and simmer and think bad thoughts about that person. Those are going to be temptations that I have. And here's where the, the battle kicks in, man. And we need to discipline ourselves to remember Christ's example for us and then to follow it. Growing up, I had a preacher tell me, multiple preachers and pastors tell me that I needed to preach the gospel to myself, what? Daily, right? I don't think that's enough. I, it's not enough for me. I need it hourly, men. There's sometimes in my life, I need it minute by minute. I need to remind myself of the gospel. I need to hold up Christ's death and go, you died, Jesus, to save me and to sanctify me. And right now, my flesh wants its peace. And you're telling me that 
that's not right. That I need to die to myself. That I need to take up my cross. I need to follow Jesus. Then I need to realize I'm a stranger and an alien. I shouldn't look to be at home here. I shouldn't look to be comfortable here. If I'm not at home and I'm not comfortable, I should praise God because that means I'm following Jesus, right? And so I need to moment by moment, minute by minute, remind myself of the gospel. And so that's, I think, what Peter was doing here by going to this idea that Christ's death was meant to free you from your sins. By his wounds, you have been healed. What does that mean? That means now you can walk in faithful obedience to God. Your relationship has been restored. You have been reconciled. He says, for once you were straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. I love how he lands the plane here because it's a reminder of who our true master is, isn't it? He's writing to slaves about obeying their earthly masters, but he's saying, look, you have a true shepherd and overseer of your souls. And that's Jesus Christ. And if you want to follow him, this is what it means. It means you're going to subject yourself to the good and to the evil as long as they're not asking you to sin because you fear God. You're going to follow Christ's example. You're going to trace your life after the way that he suffered for you. And you're going to respond to that by living a life of godliness and holiness. Again, I vividly remember dropping that egg from that stadium. And now I sit here and I go, yeah, but that doesn't have any bearing on my life at all. Man, guard against that being your walk with Christ. Peter was trying to make sure that his audience knew, look, guys, this isn't just a systematic theology for you about living a life of godliness. This has practical implications for your life. We're going to put boots on the ground and get in the relationships that you're facing on a daily basis. And you need to understand that God has expectations of you as strangers and aliens in this life that you now live. Man, it's the same for us. This is not a textbook. This is a guide for us to be able to say, God, how should we then live in this world while we await the return of Christ? And it's going to be hard. We're going to have hardship. We're going to have suffering. But we have one that went before us that paved the way And now we get to follow in his steps. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for that reality, that truth, that Christ is the one that went before us, that we have a savior who suffered for us, God, and that now we can, as the writer of Hebrews says, fix our eyes on him, the author and perfecter of our faith. We can run with endurance the race set before us. God, enable us to do that and do that well. Lord, enable us even to to look at suffering with a degree of, and measure of of thankfulness and and welcoming because it means that we are truly following Jesus in this world. If they persecuted him, they will persecute us. If they hated him, they will hate us. Lord, allow us to be faithful to you and to please you so that you might look at our lives and say, hey, well done. That's what we want more than anything else here on this earth. We pray in Christ's name, amen.